Hello and welcome to the Rabbit Hole, the definitive developers podcast in fabtabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez, our co-host today, Dave Anderson, and our producer, William Jeffries. And today we'll be talking about Elixir, the programming language. This is going to be pretty exciting because I don't know much about Elixir and it sounds like like items you get in a video game that revitalizes you and makes oh, you a better person yeah, right. at the end. I always save it till the end. I yes. never use them. Yeah. But <laughs> you have a ton of them I, in your inventory. Don't do anything with them after you beat the game. <laughs> we'll do, how does that work? I don't uh, know. Yeah, that's a good question. But also, like, why use it? And maybe why not? I, I don't know. I'm feeling lazy today. So maybe cool. I don't want to use Luxor. <laughs> yeah, cool. I mean, we're about to find out right now with uh, introducing our special guest, Steven Nunez. Hey, Steve, how's it going, bro? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to have you on board. And you are in the room right now, probably the elixir expert. So you're like the elixir mixer. You're the chemist in the room, the co-fixer. There you go. (laughs) The elixir mixer code fixer. Is that that your job title? (laughs) It is actually. Mr. Elixir, the code fixer. Oh, there you go. So today I think it's your job for to enlighten us and our listeners into elixir it's the programming language and why should we immediately go into just programming in elixir at the end of the day this is like the one programming language where mike's not better than you right (laughs) (laughs) i think he's better at me at cobol and that's about it (laughs) yeah yeah, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and java but who cares yeah exactly I, I, i like my cobol trust so so sell me an elixir like why what's the sales pitch why should i learn it so i mean i'll I'll tell you sort of how i i came to it and what sort of made me fall in love with it for a long time i was a a, i was a rubyist and i know that term is a bit weird but like i was almost like angrily opposed to other programming languages i fell in love with ruby's expressiveness and how it it gave you the language to create gave you methods like end with on strings it gave you like each and map and things that did exactly what you expected them to do I really, really like that that expressiveness and did that for a long time. Did did exclusively Ruby. I mean, some JavaScript because it's a web, but did Ruby, loved Ruby. But I think the world around Ruby changed a good deal. Mm. You know, server architecture started to change where uh, in order to get more performance, you know, for, in a Ruby application, we would say, well, let's just throw more core, let's throw more more servers at it, right? It was like, servers are cheap, developers are expensive, let's optimize for developer happiness. But architecture started to change, CPUs stopped, individually stopped getting faster, and they started to put more cores on a single machine on a single on a single chip. Yeah, because of that, that's, that's hard to take advantage though. Right. Ruby, like that's classic global interpreter lock that's issue. Right. Yeah, all the threads, the, the gill, the gill. <laughs> so the gill beat us up, right? Because to do that, you know, to start multiple processes, to take advantage of multiple cores, you're starting multiple Ruby processes. Really expensive on memory, but I didn't. You don't let go because Ruby's great. I found out about Elixir through a screencast. Jose Valim wrote the language and. He was kind of like demonstrating some of the language. And I was like, this is beautiful. Like it has a lot of the things that I value in Ruby, that expressive API, the really rich language for manipulating strings and lists and new things that I didn't know I wanted, like pattern matching and multiple, like having functional uh, functional language. And then a way of writing code that for free, you get to take advantage of multiple cores. And for free, you also get to take advantage of distributed programming. So it's it's. It, what do you mean by distributed programming? So running the same running code on multiple servers is, from a code perspective, almost exactly the same as running it on one machine. 
So I can say, there's, there's a way where I can say, run this over there in the server's name, and I can run really expensive task on, say, a server that maybe is more of a workhorse, maybe has like a proprietary library and calls out to C on this one licensed server. Really easy to just make a call, right? If we did that in Ruby, we'd need an API. We'd have to make a web request. Yeah, maybe a sidekick or right. something like that. Right. With this, you can just spin off processes. Elixir really just gets rid of a lot of the stuff that we're used to having in the Rails world. So there's no concept of like a sidekick in Elixir. You spin up a process and it runs in the background. You can do way more on one server than you can because, again, you're just taking advantage of more of the hardware. It's really, really cool. Hmm, cool. So, yeah, I like that idea of like a for each programming language, they're designed with certain philosophies and those philosophies make certain things a lot easier and certain things maybe a little bit harder. But yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. And like, I guess like Ruby being something that's like designed for programmer happiness makes it easier for programmers to be happy, but maybe makes it harder for, for productivity with the respect of like concurrency and all that. So like the standard library, you mentioned like for Elixir, it's, it's really robust and a lot of similar things going on in Ruby. Is that a, a coincidence? Like, is it directly inspired by Ruby and, and like Matt's philosophies? Or? Yeah, very much. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if there's an equivalent of like Matt's is nice, so we are nice for Elixir, but the community is, is very much in alignment with a lot of that stuff, like ease of use. Okay. What's really cool is that because of those similarities, because they're kind of like programming cousins, a lot of people who develop Ruby libraries wind up developing similar libraries for Elixir and the corresponding web frameworks, right? So there's there's a web framework called Phoenix mm-hmm. that is kind of like Rails, but but better. Oh, that's fire. <laughs> that's fire. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful support for, for WebSockets, automatic distribution of, of, like, of load. It has libraries that connect to AWS that look exactly like the ones you would use in a Rails project. They have... Okay. Uh, different de- de- device like libraries they have them for for phoenix okay yeah i i kind of wish travis was here so we could give a plug for remote retro which is also done in elixir with phoenix That's right. oh yeah everybody should use remote retro i'll you- plug it on his behalf it's a <laughs> tool that you can use in order to run your retros remotely and it comes with a whole bunch of handy features it, it's also sort of its own facilitator so if you don't have a facilitator handy, this tool will basically do it for you. It guides you through step by step. And the whole thing runs on Elixir. Yeah, Elixir backend and React frontend. Yep. And it's open source too. So if you're interested in hacking soon after the episode, when Steve's done with the uh, we'll explaining get, get the amazingness. Right. As soon as the episode's over. We're all going to make pull requests to uh, remote <laughs> retro. Hopefully. I'm going to say pause the episode now. Well, <laughs> let me give the instructions and pause. Go download it. Brew, <laughs> brew install Elixir. And then come back. And then trust yeah. me. Uh, but um, this is just a, that's just some, some open source project, right? Why should we learn Elixir given that nobody really uses it in production? So that's sort of the interesting thing. So we're we're building some stuff in Elixir now. But I guess one thing that's important to understand is that Elixir is run on uh, on an underlying virtual machine uh, called the Beam. So the Beam runs Erlang. And Erlang's been around since 1986. Wait, was it the Bean or the Beam? Beam, uh, like, okay. uh, like a beam of light. Okay. Not like a not, bean. Not, and not like a Java beam. Run, not laser not beam. Like a jo- laser, nothing like a Java laser beam. Laser beams. Yeah. And as a result, there's a ton of libraries that already exist and are in production. So WhatsApp, for instance, is sort of the big one that people go to. One billion connections are managed all through the same virtual machine that Elixir runs on. Oh, wow, mm-hmm. yeah. So this thing is sort of built to, to build these massive networks. And Erlang was originally built to for the telecom companies to kind of like route calls. So you have this thing that is 
like sitting with so much power. But if you look at Erlang, it looks like something maybe Mike wrote in a previous slide. Uh, and that's a I like. see what you did there. <laughs> so amazing. Is that what you're saying? Definitely. Not, not? Is that cool? What's the deal here? So Mike is a natural Erlang developer. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's inspired by like Prolog and other languages that, that aren't as popular today. So like if you look at them, it's kind of like derived from something you don't know the source of. It becomes a little bit harder to get your, your head around. But so, tons of so libraries. Is, is WhatsApp actually built in Erlang or it, is it Elixir? It's built in Erlang. But they do okay. have, I believe they have some Elixir since it's the same VM. The concept extends to like in the JVM, you have Java and you have Scala sort of mm-hmm. sitting side by side or okay. Clojure sitting side by side. It's the same, the same runtime. So you could have both. There have been a couple of cases. I forget the, there are sports website that went from an insane amount of Rails servers to like a really small amount of Elixir of Phoenix servers, just replacing, replacing their, their Rails infrastructure. Just because they're getting more bang for their buck for the servers that they are running. That's cool. So it's, it sounds like the concept of kind of taking a lot of advantage of con- concurrency, like does, does this like mesh with like serverless? Is, is this like, is, is this a good thing to run in the serverless environment or is it just really good at concurrency so you don't even need to worry about like jumping on that bandwagon. You just have this other bandwagon you can jump on. Yeah, this. I mean, I guess this falls more on the traditional I run a server, it runs my code. Like you're still, this is still you owning and managing managing the code. So it's it's an alternative. I One thing that's kind of interesting, I wanted to talk about a couple of things that are that are very different from, that you get that, that kind of excited me about Elixir. One of them I mentioned was the, the beautiful syntax and the... Uh, the attention to making a really expressive language. But this is something that we do at work that is still mind-blowing. So today, if you upgrade an app, you have new code that you want to get up there, you know, maybe you want to like not disturb disturb users. You like pull a couple of servers out of the load balancer and then you wait for people to disconnect. You drain the pool, you upgrade the code, spin them back up, right? If we're doing web applications, that's kind of fine because it's request response sort of finishes and starts. But as you start building more connected applications, connected over WebSockets, connected over different channels, Bringing a server down is like a no-no, right? Or very hard. With with Elixir and other Beam languages, you can do like in-place upgrades of code. So I have servers now at the Flatiron School that support our learning infrastructure for students. So they are they connect to a remote environment, they have a terminal, file tree, sort of like the whole thing, but it's all hosted remotely mm-hmm. in isolated like containers. We have to fix bugs on it. You know, try as we might, sometimes we write a couple of bugs or we enhance the features and we cannot knock people off because they're doing labs for sometimes like hours at a time. Right. Imagine doing all that work and getting knocked off. And then, and no save, like no, What's no, it? no way to know where you left off or if the right. server you've got just all, clips you've off. you got all the tabs open, you're, yeah. you're in it. Yeah. So with the dog this, ate your homework. That's right. <laughs> I was totally going to do this lab, but oof, man, server, <laughs> it's, uh, server went down. Impossible. Servers don't go down. Yeah. And to me, that's really powerful too, right? Because now you can start thinking about different kinds of applications. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I was really surprised. I kind of fell in love with Elixir in concept and then started doing it. And then you start seeing different kinds of, of things you can build because now you can have these long lived applications and you can upgrade them in place and you can do like really advanced inter-server communication that is just like hard to do without bringing in like RabbitMQ or bringing in like, uh, you know, workers and Redis and all these other dependencies. Right. You just red, have red, it out of the box. Deploys, yeah. Red, green deploys, whatever. You're just, you're good. You're just there. So what what is the mechanism that like really facilitates that in Elixir? I, I seem to remember something about like module swapping or something like that. It's... Yeah. So yeah. The, when you when you provide an upgrade, uh, when you build an upgrade, 
and you apply it, it has a, a, a kind of a manifest saying like, this thing is in memory, replace it with this one. So like the next time someone calls that function, it's like they're calling the new one and the old one is still in memory till no one's using it and then it kind of drops off. The good thing is that you don't kind of have to worry about it. You just build the upgrade into play and that sort of just magically happens. Hmm, cool. And I guess that's like a built-in thing from the earlying days from the telecoms yeah. not wanting to drop calls exactly. and yeah. Yeah. So all that prob- important stuff. Yeah. yeah, can you be like, uh, we're, we're experiencing server maintenance uh, from three to five, so please don't make any phone calls. Like, it's got to be up <laughs> all the time. I've, I've heard the the beam is a Ferrari cover in stra- covered in scrap metal where it's just like this amazing thing that is so good at doing programming things that we care about, but it's just awful to work with. Mm. Until now. Until now. <laughs> Until now. There, so you mentioned Beam languages. Are there other languages that fall under the Beam uh, virtual machine? Or Yeah. So I mentioned Erlang, Elixir. There's one which is a, a, a flavor of Lisp, which I forget the name of it, but there's also there's that one where you can... Oh. So if you like parentheses. If you love those parentheses, <laughs> love those parentheses, go for it. Mm. So why don't you think that Elixir has caught on more industry? That's a question I ask myself a lot. I think part of it might be friction to change. I think just just like having to learn a new thing is hard, genuinely hard. Like where to get your head around, like how, what problem to solve. I think that if if you have someone who knows it, who's gone through the trouble for whatever reason for just play or inspired by someone on a podcast, oh. I think you'll see that you'll see it as a tool you can reach for and probably want to reach for more often. But I think it's that first exposure and then the learning. Because as a result, like it's not just so first off, it's a functional programming language, right? So that's the first thing. So now you've got to think about things outside of object orientation. If you've never done anything like that, that's something you have to kind of like yeah, get your head around. Like a monad, right? Okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> What's Wait, a monad? What's a monad? Pass. I guess if you want to learn more about monads, you can refer to uh, the episode we have with Adam about functional programming. Yeah. Right, so then there's that. And then there's the, the other part of Elixir, which is a really powerful thing that just doesn't exist in, in the world of Ruby. So you're essentially designing servers that respond to messages. So it's been like, if you ever heard Alan Kay's uh, description of what, objects were supposed to be. He said the metaphor of like biological cells sort of sending messages to each other, not reaching inside of one, but just sending some chemical, it receives it, it responds. So you wind up uh, defining these servers that respond to messages, and that's how you encapsulate your programming. Then there's Mm. this other concept called supervisors, where you can have another process that monitors other processes, and if they die, it just restarts them. You can have strategies for restarting servers and supervisors. And then you get to the distributed part. So I think that that's, it's, a, it's a steep hill to climb, but the, it's so good along the way. Because yeah. the mm. things you get beyond just a regular language that can take a request in and parse it and route it and hit a database, like that's fine. And it does that really well. Phoenix is amazing. But the second you start kind of like looking into the underlying mechanisms that make it really, really cool... That's when I think it starts to take off. That's when you start to see, oh my God, everything is an Elixir app. So, so why don't you teach it at the Flatiron School? I think I'm the, I'm currently lead engineering. That's taken up a lot of my time. Ah. But I would love to write some curriculum. If there's interest, send me a message on Twitter if you're interested in an Elixir course. Uh, it's something that I'm really excited to, to do at some point. It's just sort of hard to figure out like when the right time is. What is your Twitter handle? Oh, underscore Steven Nunes. Of. underscore Stephen Nunez. And that is that with a V? What's a V? Oh, thank you. Yeah, Stephen with a V. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make sure we'll put that there too. Right, guys? Yeah, always. We've been hearing a lot of good things about Elixir. And I think 
I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Why should I do Elixir? I think one thing that comes to mind is, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know I'm going to be, but Ruby has gems and Elixir has I'm going to think potions. Like, what is what that? Hex packages. Okay. So, so that is nice. What's the community behind the packages in Elixir versus something that's been around for many years now, like yeah. Ruby Gems and whatnot? That, that's a really good point. One, one thing that I saw that was pretty interesting when something like Node.js came out mm-hmm. is that the, the rate of package creation was really fast because at the time it was it came out well 2009 like we had like a very rich developer culture github was a thing mm-hmm. i think we had like a really easy way to collaborate elixir being a little bit newer kind of benefits from that as well we kind of have patterns that we like we implemented in our language but ruby has something that elixir doesn't time right so elixir has been around for i want to say five, six years yeah. at this point. Ruby was created in 1995. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. But I think the the really cool thing is that Erlang's been around since 1986. Right. And you can use every single Erlang library in Elixir. And in fact, you that's not a concept that you sort of like hide, you embrace it. So I mentioned that Phoenix framework. Phoenix leans on a library called Cowboy, which has been out forever and handles like web requests. It handles the web. Mm-hmm. So why rebuild it when something's been battle tested and been put through the, through its paces when you can just use it? So I think I think that's something interesting to think about. It's a new language, but it exists in a world where things are available, well tested, well supported, have communities around them, and have, have essentially have had reps. So why not use Elixir? What's the situation where it would be a bad idea? So the example that usually comes out, I have a couple a couple in my head, but the one they usually give is if you need something that's intense and number crunching don't use Elixir or Erlang. Like write that in C, write that in like a super low level, low level language. Right. Or um, like something that has a lot of community support for it, like Python, where it kind of shells out to C libraries, to Fortran libraries, and, and has that mm. that muscle behind it. Well, I mean, you can you can call out to, they have a way of, uh, they have a thing called a NIF where you can connect to a C library from Elixir, same kind of, same kind of thing that like Ruby does with FFI and, and Python does. So if you have access to that underlying library, you can call out to it. They call it a NIF? NIF. N-I-F. Native something. Hex packages, NIFs. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that concept still exists. So write that in, write that in C. Uh, write that in your low-level, really fast language, and then call out to it, and then go back to being in the amazing world of Elixir. <laughs> never leave. Never leave. Never leave. It's like uh, one thing. One thing I will say is, I guess if you need like a compiled binary, it's kind of nice to have like Go compile a binary or like a C compiled binary. There is a compilation in Elixir where I can give you a binary, but there are kind of some conditions. So I can give you something called an eScript, which will run on your machine. If you have the Beam installed, if you have like the Erlang runtime installed, I can give you an executable and it'll run, no problem. There's also the concept of a release. A release is just like an all-in-one package that has everything, but it's not a binary. It's like a collection of directories and and stuff. So there's not like a really nice way to package up a single like exe file and like send that over to you or just some binary. So if you need that, look at I don't know Crystal. Crystal is the is that the thing yet? Are people excited about Crystal? I don't know. Next podcast. Yeah, next podcast, <laughs> it'll be on Crystal. You know, you'll probably come back and start. Have you been Guys, right? forget <laughs> about Elixir. Crystal's a new thing. Good news, everyone. <laughs> Crystal, I thought that was a statically typed version of Ruby. Sort of, yeah. It runs, I think, on the... Uh, it uses the LLVM and is 
not Ruby-like, but super ex- inspired by Ruby. The reason I say is like there were languages like Myra, which were Ruby-like. This one tries to be Ruby. Like there's no like it tries to keep the expressiveness, the blocks, the syntax, the like all the things, and tries to be it while having types. Yeah, I heard that Ruby was actually moving toward adding types in 3.0. Yeah, Ruby 3 by 3, I think is what they're calling it. So they want Ruby 3 to be three times faster than Ruby 2.0. And they're getting pretty close. I think they have the the JIT, the new JIT that's in 2.6. Uh, that's supposed to have some pretty cool improvements pretty soon. They're experimenting with some stuff. But then they think types can help with some sort of like optimizations. Yeah, it's funny how like... You know what doesn't need optimizing? Elixir. That thing is fast, guys. <laughs> so even if even if Ruby gets faster, you, would, you wouldn't switch. You wouldn't go back. You know, I, I was thinking about that the other day. I think I probably wouldn't. Because I think the, the, the way that I can write applications now with just being in this Elixir ecosystem, spinning up processes and my supervisors and my supervisor tree. And I'm, you get essentially get to build these self-healing systems that if something crashes downstream, it'll just kind of like fix itself and then just keep carrying on. Like Ruby's not, it's not just the speed. It's also that, that kind of like additional layer of programming. Like I now have all the tools that I had before as a programmer and then some. I now am essentially designing code the way I would design servers. I use I have a networking background. So like the way I would set up Nagios to look at things when they fail and then like fire off a script and do this thing. Like it it's that on top of all the things you love in programming. So like one thing that I feel like Ruby really has going for it, I think we talk about this a lot, is like the developer friendliness, like how it's just really nice and it's a great language for a beginner to pick up and really sink their teeth into programming for the first time. If you were a beginner and you know you're out there listening to this. Would you say that they should pick up Elixir as a first programming language? I think it can be one thing that you'll miss out on, and this is something that I think just the the industry of like boot camps in general have helped a lot in 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 Ruby is that now because we've had so many beginners in Ruby go from not knowing to knowing, we have a ton of material out there in the form of like blogs and videos and like a bunch mm-hmm. of things that people have just mm-hmm. tried to pre-digest something, right? One thing we sort of take for granted as pro- seasoned programmers is that sometimes you just don't see, you don't understand, the metaphor that they use in the documentation is not the one that you would use. So by reading someone else's interpretation of like the difference between map and reduce in, in a, a blog post, is super useful for a beginner. So it's not just a matter of like, if you're the kind of beginner who can read documentation and just learn, then yeah, go learn Elixir. It's the future of programming. <laughs> but if you, if you are, you know, you're going to want to like Google stuff and find things that are not just a documentation, Ruby still has it beat. Right. But I think that that's a matter of Especially like, with the like thick, the really uh, thick amount of like answers on Stack Overflow. Yeah, How sure. many times can someone answer what like a map is or what a block is right. yeah. uh, in so many different ways that, you know, some, one's going to stick. One's going to stick. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, students take a lot of effort into like making these really creative blog posts to explain things that I guess we take for granted. Like what is a class, right? Like we take classes for inst- for, for, for granted, right? Right. In the difference between instance methods and class methods, but they have like animations and drawings and they, they really take that extra step to kind of digest it. And that body of material exists. So until, mm-hmm. until maybe I get all that, all the, the tweets on the internet, to uh, start an Elixir course, there you go. It'll be a little <laughs> while before before it becomes as approachable because of the ecosystem it exists in. Right. Yeah. I guess like a like a devil's advocate about that might be 
hey, if that appeals to you, that you want to be that person who builds that ecosystem and writes that documentation and writes that silly blog post about what it means to do a for loop or whatever uh, map reduce in uh, Elixir, then that could be an argument to learn it for you. Yeah, for sure. You could be the trendsetter. You could be, be the first person to have those. I mean, I'm sure there are questions still in Stack Overflow, but Ruby probably has so many different ways of asking the same question. Yeah, it's just versus, easier to do stuff in Elixir, so there's going to be less questions, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, and you can score some really great Stack Overflow points by being one of those early adopters Absolutely. who answers that question yep. that then ends up with a thousand upvotes. There you go. Internet yeah. points? Internet, internet points. points. You want those internet points for sure. Always cash them in. Do we have any teaching learns? Yeah, I have one currently. Right now, I'm currently using UIKit. So we're spinning up a a greenfield application uh, front end uh, front end app and we really didn't want to deal with you know installing a grid framework or any boilerplate for CSS so we're currently using UI kit I think it's uh, 3.0 beta and it's a lot of fun I mean to know that someone else took the headache of setting up a grid framework and just making it very easy for me to say like oh I'm going to have this container that has a grid that will render cards and mm-hmm. put them three in a row if it's in a large breakpoint and two in a row if it's a small one and one in a row if it's in uh, mobile. So this but, is just like CSS framework, basically? Yeah, like, it's a CSS yeah. framework and it just handles all that for you. It has all... The documentation is really good. It's like... It's very, very, very helpful and mm. it's very well written. It's amazing. I would suggest anyone wanting to use a grid framework without having to or rather a CSS framework without having to dive in or deal with boilerplate to use UIKit. So like what sets this apart from Bootstrap? I think I think part of the reason why we use UIKit is because everyone was familiar with Bootstrap, so I think we're diving in to figure out what are some of the key differences and similarities. Uh mm. it's it's very similar to Bootstrap though. I think it, okay. it comes with its own icons and its own uh, grid framework. You know, the the whole thing you would get in Bootstrap, you can also get in UIKit, and it's actually very well documented as well. Cool. You should uh, look into uh, CSS Grid. Anyone looked into that at all? So in the last few, I guess very recently, there's like a native grid system in like support all supported browsers, like modern yeah. browsers. Yeah, WebKit, I believe. Yeah, well, WebKit, Firefox, and Firefox mm-hmm. has amazing support for like developing with CSS Grid, and it gives you stuff out of the box that lets you make really complicated and beautiful grids. Yeah. Without, with, if you wanted to look at it without any libraries, um, right. there's a really good book by I forget. I think it's probably called CSS Grid. It's print, uh, published by a book apart mm-hmm. that kind of breaks it down really well. Awesome, learning about that CSS. That's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> cool, Steve. How can people reach you on the Twitters? I think I don't. We're gonna reiterate some of that stuff you mentioned. Your Twitters was underscore Stephen Nunez with the V. That's right. Is that correct? That's right. So I blog- tweeted that if you want to. See an Elixir course. Yeah. Holler at me. Uh, Also blog at hostiledeveloper.com. Still intimidated by that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Let's keep the conversation going on Twitter. Follow us now at Radio Free Rabbit. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review. It helps developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now, however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and my amazing co-host, Dave Anderson, and me, your host, Michael Nunez, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole. <laughs>